Today, we explore the world of real estate markets. What has changed since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic? What hasn't? And what will this mean for the future of real estate? We find out next. Welcome to Amplified, Federated Hermes podcast channel, where we discuss the key issues, challenges and trends shaping the investment landscape. I'm Kirsty Willman, a director in the real estate team at Federated Hermes. As the world continues to grapple the coronavirus pandemic, much of the debate has focused on how the virus has changed the way people live and work. We've watched from the sidelines as governments and central banks around the world have unleashed unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus and other support for economies flawed by the coronavirus pandemic. For the real estate market, lockdown measures meant that offices stood empty and shopping centres and restaurants were shuttered, forcing property managers into crisis management mode. What's more, the virus put the challenges already facing the real estate industry before the pandemic under the spotlight. In the housing world, these include creating a stock of affordable housing, improving housing conditions and developing modern, low-carbon methods of construction, which all remain an imperative. And in commercial property, The impact of increasing reliance on internet sales in retail and a trend towards flexible working and away from presenteeism in the office. But amidst the crisis, surely we have a chance to build a better future. Over the past few months, we've been speaking to our colleagues on the Federated Hermes real estate team and some external experts about the crisis and the opportunities in the real estate market going forward. Today, we share these views and helping discuss some of the key talking points is Ben Sanderson, an executive director at Federated Hermes. So looking back to the start of the pandemic, which seems like a long time ago now, a pandemic was declared on the 11th of March and we went into lockdown on the 23rd of March. And and Ben, it was all pretty sudden, wasn't it? It was, Kirsty, yes. And it's as you say, it's, it's actually very easy to forget the speed at which this, this whole uh, pandemic and the whole response to it happened. Um, early March, 5th of March, we had the first UK death. 11th of March, as you said, the pandemic was announced. We had a huge economic and fiscal reaction with the FTSE down by record level, base rates cut, major sports events suspended and and the panic buying, of course, we remember in, in the shops. But it wasn't until the 23rd of March that we uh, we moved into a, a significant lockdown which affected the, the real estate industry. And, and we explored with our colleagues, the Federated Hermes team, but also, as you said, external experts to as to how the property industry reacted to that. The speed was the thing, though, and that the speed and the way it had to be nimble and reactive so quickly, and and the crisis brought really into focus uh, the importance of good asset management. We we spoke to Ed Sellick, the investment manager at Federated Hermes. He he looks after the Centre MK shopping centre amongst other assets, and he was very very clear about how how we had to react to the crisis and the challenges that uh, the challenges that we faced. Of course, no one saw the severity of this coming, and. What was interesting with disaster recovery plans is that um, they sort of anticipate things such as, you know, horribly ter- terrorist incidents um, or even cyber um, attacks where the uh, actual Im- implications are fairly local. But something that's not just the national but an international lockdown um it, it was something that that wasn't necessarily um planned for however the elements of the 
business continuity plan were very helpful in terms of identifying roles and responsibilities very early on. So we were able to sort of slice and dice the things that we needed to consider and split them amongst the team so that everyone could effectively get on with their area of responsibility and then group back again. And it was it was fascinating to hear Ed talking about that because this this position whereby on a day to day basis we were waiting for government advice and reacting to it. Clearly things were moving very fast and clearly advice couldn't be consulted and discussed in detail before being announced. So government advice and guidelines and, and in some cases the law was changing very, very quickly. Ed and the team had to react to some of our retailers, for example, food retailers having unprecedented levels of demand others closing partially and others closing entirely. Um, and then looking to minimise the cost because an important part of uh, property management that Ed explained to us was, was how you minimise the cost for your, for your tenants and you can minimise that through managing the service charge appropriately, but at the same time ensuring the buildings are maintained and, and, and they're safe. I was also fascinated when I heard Ed and the team and one of the issues that is easy to un- underestimate is the extent to which Ed and all the property managers that we deal with, we're having to to trade off and, and really understand both the risks to our tenants, the risks to consumers coming into to, to the shops that we manage, but also really important issue, of course, is is the risk to our staff as well. I mean, Ed had to manage his own team, make sure all the people who worked for him were okay and they were safe and their families were safe. So that's a really challenging time that that, that every day was was changing changing fast, and then just looking. Specifically, the tenants, you know, tenants had huge challenges out there and tenants really needed help. They needed help in terms of guidance. They needed help in terms of understanding what was coming next. They had to deal with issues of stock and keeping their buildings safe. And so we really had to really put a lot of messages out there. And Ed was very clear about how we could try and help tenants through through that period. We've put a lot of messaging out uh, around the services that we've had to continue to provide at the centre um, in order for retail- retailers to understand that costs don't just stop because their doors are closed. Um, and what we've also done is try to um, uh, do a thorough overhaul of, first of all, the services that we were providing, make sure that we ourselves were taking up all of the government furlough opportunities where possible in order to save costs, um, for, to run the centre on, on a, um, emergency basis and then work those figures through to, um, a cash flow actually looking through for a whole year. Um, until the end of the service charge period in April 2021 to make sure that we aren't going to run out of, of cash at, at some stage in the future by giving away too much uh, or giving back, sorry, too much service charge money at, at this stage. So Ed was very, very clear at the challenge he, he was facing from a, from a property management point of view, but it also brought into focus some wider ESG issues as well. And, and these you know, a well-run shopping centre, and we like to think that ours are extremely well-run. A well-run shopping centre is part of the local community. And what we heard from Ed and what was really good to hear was that the centre was able to do things to contribute towards the community during the crisis. So, for example, they helped to distribute food to various uh, good causes, including the NHS, and also providing free parking for both the people working at the centre and to other key workers as well. And that role, that, that wider ESG perspective, the role that real estate and physical assets can play 
in the wider community in good times and in bad was, was really brought to the fore by the things that Ed talked about through this crisis management. Of course, those are issues relating to, uh, to retail assets, but similar situations also occurred uh, in relation to offices too. And, and they, they did remain open uh, and people un- misunderstand this sometimes. You know, offices remained open. We heard that very clearly, even though people weren't occupying them. They had to be maintained. They had to be kept safe and secure. They had to be cleaned. And uh, people working there were often the, the ultimate key workers, really, who were keeping uh, the, the, the properties safe uh, and secure and, and ready to, to, to reopen uh, as and when the, the moment came, uh, and a huge kind of personal sacrifice to them in, in, in many cases. So those shared services for key workers and access where necessary was, was really very, very important. Uh, and that's before we moved on to, to the reopening challenges, Kirsty. And actually, as much as that lockdown was a challenge, um, reopening was as much of a challenge. Um, as we all know, changes were coming through incrementally, but with not much time to prepare and, and not much information in advance. And often, you know, the daily briefing was the first time that we had heard any of that information. There was no health and safety guidance. There was no um, legislation to set out how we should or shouldn't do things. Um, And even small things, fascinatingly, even small things like ordering signage, um, but not quite knowing what the signage should say at the point where you need to order it to make sure you've got it in time for reopening. Um, How you deal with that scenario to make sure that you still get everything reopened safely and quickly um, and, and actually, that's um, very much so in retail, where um, the public are in lots of areas, um, but also in other types of real estate where there's shared areas. So, for example, in offices with reception areas and lifts and having to think about how all of that gets managed um, in an environment where we have to have social distancing um, and have to meet the, the health and safety requirements. I mean, Ed talked to us a little bit about preparing for reopening as well. We're acutely conscious that um, most of the value in a retail destination is in its reputation. And with consumers, you need to give them that total confidence that they can come shopping um, in a, a safe way. And one bad experience will be enough not just to put one person off, but to put off everyone else that they talk to about about it. And in these days of social media, talking to people can be online and can go viral before you know it. So it's very important to get it right. And we were very aware that we had one chance to get it right as well. When the doors opened, if we were uh, wrong, we would be picked up on it. Um, so, yeah, we, we worked through a plan in the uh, months before uh, reopening, uh, firstly, in terms of physically what we would be doing within the centre itself. And as Steve mentioned, we introduced a one-way system. We're fortunate Centre MK has got planters down the middle of the mall, so it's quite easy to draw a line down the middle of the mall and say um, sort of uh, forward this way, back that way. Um, we worked very closely with all our retailers because – Clearly, whilst we would be providing additional um, guest services staff ourselves, uh, we rely heavily on retailers managing their queuing as well. We could provide the queuing points, um, but we needed assistance of of retailers um, to do that. It was interesting, though, as well, to compare the issues facing assets such such as the retail assets and the office assets to the other assets we manage. And we've got an increasingly large residential portfolio so as as we know we're 
many of us were, were working from home um, and our, our homes became our offices and to some extent our shopping centres as well. As, as someone said to me, it's not necessarily that they were working at home. They were almost felt like they were living at work in many, in many cases with, with people having to turn their homes into their offices and, and the home becoming even more important. And in many ways, it's certainly apparent that those discrepancies and disparities between the, the quality of housing became very, very alive and real for, for, for many in our community during this period. Those people with, with poorer quality housing uh, struggled uh, compared to those with, with larger, higher quality housing in terms of homeschooling and, and homeworking, et cetera. But the portfolio of, of residential assets that we have um, certainly seem to perform extremely well. And, and in, importantly, the, the community aspect of that housing was really brought to the fore and, and, and certainly performed well. We, we discussed some of these issues with, with Will Gibby, who is the fund manager for the residential portfolio assets for Federated Hermes. And we talked to him about how, how our private sector residential assets, our PRS assets, uh, performed during the crisis. We've been managing nearly 500 units now across uh, two assets in Manchester and Liverpool um, for almost almost three years, actually. And it performed really well over the past few years, but we've been, we've been particularly pleased by the reaction to the crisis over the past four months. So rent collections for July are in line with rent collections between April and June, and that is over 99%. So a real strong um, uh, income flow from these particular assets, which we're very pleased with. But also what's been notable over the past couple of weeks is that people have moved from virtual viewings to the fiscal um, and last week we saw 50 viewings uh, resulting in 15 new leases. So fundamentally, there's been a real strong performance over the past four months. And I've been very pleased with I think the one main uh, change in terms of tone of conversation has been that the, 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 the assets are no longer seen as premium rent, but they're seen as performing a, a key function within the local communities and our communities in themselves. So for us, it's really strong cash flow really strong benefits from a social perspective and uh, obviously good performance uh, on behalf of our clients. So we can contrast what was happening in residential to what was happening with consumer and business behaviour. Um, clearly there are existing trends for increasing internet penetration across the retail space. Um, we talked to Emily Bird, who's a fund manager in the Federated Hermes team, um, and she was very clear um, in what was happening to consumer behaviour during the crisis. I think within the population at the moment, what we're currently seeing is a bit of a, a divergence in attitudes um, that are driving their respective consumption patterns. So at one end of the spectrum, uh, for some, there's this real sense of anxiety and worry. You know, we're still in, in the middle, really, of, of this pandemic, and it's likely that we're going to be in, in sort of unusual conditions, um, probably for a lot of next year as well. We'll still be living with the virus. But at the other end of the, the spectrum, um, I think there is still a, a group of consumers that remain maybe a little bit indifferent to the pandemic and are largely carrying on their life as normal. So I guess at the outset, it was panic and, and fear that led to that sort of mad scramble to, to get hold of all the basic needs and essentials, such as you know your hand sanitizer, your masks, um, toilet paper, of course. Um, but, but for me, undoubtedly, as we, as we keep going on, the most significant change is the acceleration of the adoption of digital commerce. Like that is a trend that was happening already. But what I sort of think we're seeing is consumers that previously may have been reluctant to shop online having been forced to do so for the, for the first time. 
And it's it's with that experience, you know, it, it will depend on whether that user experience has been positive or negative as to what the fundamental shift will be. Now, I think for a lot of people, that experience and, and getting comfortable with, with shopping online will have been a positive experience and have seen the ease of, 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 you know, what it can provide to their daily life. So we may see a continued adoption of that. Um, but I, I think for some, you know, when they have the ability to go out and shop, that they will go back to sort of their physical retail pattern. So I do think that, that the fundamental shift for me is, is um, I guess, a wider adoption of digital commerce. Um, but I still think that, that the level of saturation of that will find a cutoff point where, where people, you know, when they have the ability to go out and shop, will yeah. continue to do so. So it's fascinating to hear Emily talk about those impacts on consumers uh, who use technology during the crisis, but also making the you know the really important and valid point that that has limits, uh, and those limits to the penetration of of internet sales and the limits to technology uh, won't replace physical retail entirely, though they're having this huge impact for sure. And also making that point as well that that this is an acceleration of an existing trend. You know, it, it's it's worth reiterating that this is not a new thing, internet use and, and e-commerce, but it has certainly accelerated significantly into new areas of the economy. We also talked to to David Dix, of course, who was who is an associate partner within the Townsend Group, and he deals with with clients not only in the UK but but also the group deals with clients all over the world. and And he took a, a broader perspective and said that you know t- he agreed that technology was being used more widely and it's having large impacts for sure. But he also said it was possible. We can overstate the extent to which uh, the COVID crisis can really change consumer behaviour. I think there's a risk for people in, 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 frankly, in our privileged position to overstate the the impact, the potential impact of these things, which, you know, this is an awful, awful event and it's affecting a lot of people's lives in a terrible way. But when, you know, when we learn to live with it or, you know, fingers crossed, find a vaccine, things return to whatever they're going to return to. I mean, there's, first of all, there's an implication in that question that there was some steady state that's been upset, but it's, there's never a steady state. There's yeah. a constant change in the way that But the second thing too, I think, is that the, the fairly basic priorities of life about, you know, trying to, to, you know, get your everyday fundamentals at a, at a reasonable price and a lower price and what have you, the, the the kind of commercial realities of that will bite for people who aren't fortunate enough to be able to to go as I have and enjoy the products of the local butcher as opposed to getting it from the supermarket mm. where it's a bit cheaper. And people go, well, that was nice, but the reality is I'd rather save a bit of money. And I think people's habits, the vast majority of people's habits, change more slowly than perhaps we might be inclined to you know, prognosticate about at this point. So I think it's fascinating to hear David make, Make a couple of really, you know, a few interesting points there. In particular, making this point that that the crisis is impacting in people in different ways, depending on where you live, your your income level, your job, your family situation. So, those of us who who, who are trying to understand what what the future may hold and how the crisis may change the real estate market going forward, should always remember the point David made there that it, it depends on where you're at and what what your consumer behaviour was before and your income level and your job as to how you'll react going forward. And those those impacts are, are different in, in, to, to all of us and, and impact often more slowly than maybe we realise. And, and the other point, which I, I think was amazing, you know, was really interesting rather, is to say that, you know, there, there never is a steady state. We're not reacting to a steady state pre-crisis and we'll move to another sort of equilibrium position. Our markets and our investment uh, 
environment is always changing, but sometimes it jerks forward and changes more more quickly than, than at other times. So that constant change is, is certainly a feature, and we should certainly bear it in mind, I think, when we look to see what impact this crisis will have on the markets going forward, the investment landscape going forward, and, 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 and as we try and anticipate, as we did in some of our later podcasts, what the future may hold and, and, and what the future may hold for, for the real estate market. And Ben, I think all of that is also very relevant for offices. So, you know, we've all worked from home because we were told to work from home. And, you know, lots of us are working from home. There are people who are throughout the crisis were going into work in key roles. Um, And there was already an underlying trend towards uh, flexible working and working from home. It's going to be fascinating to see what this means for the future of, of of how we work flexibly and the future of the office. I mean, are we all going to be working from home more in the future or are we going to be working in more local hubs? And we can see lots of companies reacting in really different ways to that at the moment. Um, Ed actually had quite an interesting take on this when we spoke to him. I think working from home is an interesting one because I do think that people will certainly um, look at commuting in a very different way. And how does that affect retail? Well, actually, I think it might not be necessarily working from home so much as working locally. So one of the opportunities for us in retail might be to start providing um, almost co-working space within um, a a shopping mall where uh, almost doing what some coffee shops do to a certain extent already, giving places where people can come and work and get a coffee and get something to eat and have interaction with other members of the public. And so long as you can do that safely, um, it will provide people with an alternative to just sitting in a, a sort of quiet bed sit on their own somewhere or other, um, but not necessarily mean having to tackle the commute um, into uh, into London or, yeah. or something like that. Ed, they're really making a very important point there, I think, about how the market may have to evolve and, and change. And this idea of evolution rather than revolution in many ways in, in the way that real estate functions and works with with the occupiers and those who want to to use real estate. This co-working idea is a, is a, is a fascinating one and seems a, a certainly very plausible natural evolution of the way that shopping centre and retail space is, is used. It does bring bring into into question the the future of offices of course and it's a debate that's been that is a live one within the real estate industry at, at the moment you know offices stayed open and accessible and are starting gradually to reopen of course but we've seen lots of announcements from lots of occupiers saying uh, they don't expect their workers back until later in the autumn or maybe even into 2021 some uh, some suggesting that uh, the structural level of demand for offices will be Will be, uh, will be much lower going forward. And, and the survey evidence suggests that consumers actually quite like that. We, uh, we commented on a survey from Morgan Stanley during the, uh, the webinar series that suggested that 78% of those in the UK who had worked at home uh, during the crisis were keen to work from home uh, more going forward. And, and, the, and, the, and the data also suggested that most people like the idea of working from home maybe two or three days a week. So it certainly seems to suggest that there's some changes on the way for offices. So we posed this question to to Emily Bird and we said to Emily, what is the office of the future like? What does it look like? For me, I think one of the themes that we are already thinking about in designing buildings is their need to be flexible and adaptable. 
um, because that's an occupational trend that, you know, I guess is happening at the moment. Um, people looking at how they're using their space and, and how they might adjust that to, to suit an environment where they have people working from home, you know, more often. Now, I guess the, the golden question that is, is does that mean that everybody needs less space? Um, not necessarily. I think that even through this um, COVID period, we've had uh, situations within our asset management team that are dealing with with tenants that, that want to upsize and, and are still pursuing um, sort of an upsize of the office space that they occupy. But I think there is a real distinction between the, the type of space that they want to occupy in that people are looking at the quality of the workspace, um, you know, that they're, that they're uh, renting and that they're occupying how well connected that is from a, a digital perspective, I think that's going to you know, become uh, more and more uh, fundamental um, for the future. And also how that building responds and supports their aspirations for the health and well-being of their employees. And, um, you know, whether that is access to, to fresh air or access to great amenity, um, very accessible offices that enable people to, to sort of have a variety of, of options um, to, to get to the office. I think is, is, is the important point. So for me, it's, it's, it's not so much how much space that people are going to be occupying, but it is the type of space that I think that mm-hmm. they'll find most attractive. I think what's really interesting is lots of people who are working from home and who want that ongoing flexibility. But actually, what we're really missing at the moment is any social interaction. Um, and we are social beings. So at the moment, we're very um, isolated in what we're doing. And there is um, already a drive to get back to the office to be able to have face-to-face meetings and to be able to have that social interaction. Um, And that very much supports what Emily is saying about how we might use office space in the future, which will be much more for um, the the face-to-face interaction and the, the, the social side of it as well. So it's flexibility and adaptability are the key things that Emily was talking about in terms of the future of of offices. And David Dix agreed that offices had a future, but that standards and facilities would have to change. I think the the claim that the office is dead is probably overcooked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, pre this, you've seen seen increased, sorry, reduction in the amount of space per worker in the office. I think um, that's going to, potentially reverse. I think it's got interesting implications for things like, um, you know, flexible working, not flexible working, hot desking, as it used to be called, I guess, where, you know, one shares a desk. Now, that that kind of made sense when you didn't have to worry about bugs, but that's going to make less sense. I mean, not no sense, but it's going to increase costs elsewhere. I think there's things like that. But I, I, I think, again, that there's a fundamental human desire to, to collaborate with people in person. And the mm. digital experience, while it is fantastic and it's liberating in many ways, is a bit of a pale substitute for the real thing. Um, and, and I think that it'll take a while to, you know, I, th- I think it, it, it's hard to imagine that suddenly we're not going to need vast swathes of office just because of something like this. I think Emily's very nicely explained a number of the trends and I, I completely agree with what she says. And I think... I think there's just much more evolution to happen. Even today, even before this, there was much more evolution to happen in offices in some parts of the world. So you visit offices in, in, in other cities and 12 months ago, if you said to people in London, oh, what are your end of trip facilities like? They'd look at you a bit blankly to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have that in some markets in, in Asia or you know, particularly in Asia, 
tenants won't even talk to you if you haven't got sort of, you know, dare I say it, fitness club level changing facilities for people who cycle to work as part of, of the lease. It's not a nice to have. It's like you haven't got it. We're not even having a conversation. And so there's things like that. There's, you know, there's some amazing buildings in London now, new buildings, but there's a lot of stuff that's probably going to have to be spruced up to allow for this type of working um, environment that people aspire to and will increasingly expect. And I I think another one last thing before I shut up, there was a lot of conversation prior to this and, and it's still going on about the war for talent. Mm-hmm. It's all about creating places so that you get the right people to want to work for you. And that's not just in offices. I mean, that, that's in logistics warehouses and it's all sorts. And I think that increasingly people will look at the built environment and say that's part of the package. Interesting to hear David talk about that war for talent and it relates to issues of, of facilities you've got. It relates to issues like the affordability of, of your space, as in is it near a, 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 a locations for housing that are affordable for people to live in, can people have a high quality of life and at its most basic level during the crisis or post-crisis, can you offer a safer environment for the talent you want to work for you? So these these issues suggest quite a lot of change on the way for the way we use our real estate and we've really got to be on top, came, off, came over very strongly, that we've really got to be on top of the changes that are going to affect the occupier base and if we're not on top of those changes that are affecting the occupier base, our buildings could well become obsolete very quickly and our buildings may well be empty and our rents could well stop flowing. So the importance of being close to your occupier, again, really, really significant. And it feels like a lot of these themes we've been talking about for a long time, but they've been really sort of slow-moving incremental changes. And, you know, over the past few months, there's been such sudden change um that that we you know it's the same trends they're just all accelerated hugely um i mean you can see the same in housing as well um the the need for change and the need for flexibility in in types of housing and we spoke to richard stonehouse who is the head of residential investment at Avison young um and and we talked to him about whether he thought housing could be a solution to the crisis in retail I think when you look at um, Boris's build, build, build platform, I think this is one of the things that there's a big hole in it as far as I'm concerned. Housing is part of the solution for, for, for local communities. It is clearly an enormously important part of it, but it cannot be seen in isolation. You know, a community is about more than purely providing housing. It's about providing you know, integration into you know, the different parts of um, whether it's culture, whether it's retail, whether it's you know, hospitality, it's all essential parts of um, you know, uh, urban environments and, and, and indeed suburban environments. And I think a lot of local authorities are likely to, to, um, to be uh, slightly uncomfortable with the, 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 the changes in the planning legislation that are brought through with um, Build, 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 because your housing has to be part of it. And I, I fundamentally believe that, that local authorities can play a really significant part in re-engineering the high streets. I mean, you talk about retail, and I don't think anyone would argue that the high street needs to change. You know, that it's not, people don't shop in the same way that they did, you know, decades ago. So it does need to be rethought, and local communities need to be rebuilt around that. But housing is part of that. And I think with 
um, local authorities on board, you'd be able to deliver significantly more affordable housing than simply turning shop front into, uh, in, into housing on a, on a high street. So Richard, they're talking about housing being part of the solution to the regeneration of some of our high streets, but clearly not the whole answer. And this idea of, of an integrated approach call it mixed use real estate, call it placemaking, but this integrated approach to the regeneration of some of our town centres post-crisis, he felt there's a, clearly he felt there's a real important role here to be played for private capital, institutional capital like the capital that, that we invest, local communities and local government, local authorities as well to provide the, the solutions to some of the 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 problems that, that, that maybe have been highlighted through the crisis and, and exist in our, in our physical physical environment. So it is fair to say, I think, that, that there's been a lot of change in the crisis. Housing, as I said earlier, was, has been brought into stark focus, really, by the challenges that many people have had by the inability to work from home effectively in an inadequate housing situation or homeschool their children in an inadequate situation. It's really driven a, a wedge between the, uh, the less, less, less advantaged parts of our community and others. So clearly, and there's been a focus coming out of the crisis. It was mentioned in the last clip, the build, build, build agenda from the government, changes to planning, new interest in housing opportunities. And we'll, we'll talk in a minute about some of the discussion that we had about social and affordable housing as well. So we asked Will Gibby, our residential fund manager, what he felt was next for the PRS and the residential portfolio we, we manage. And, and Will was very clear that maybe the focus in city centres was going to change, maybe more suburban investment, but also... It was also clear that more flexibility in how we use residential space was going to be part of the future. It's interesting you talk about you know, suburban living. A lot of the the investments that we are now that we are now making and the process of concluding concluding documentation on um, are very much of that ilk. So they're they're edge of city probably. I wouldn't quite call them true suburban, but certainly edge of city. Um, they tend to benefit from some natural amenity nearby, so whether it be, you know, water or parkland or, or, or something, something of that nature. And also, interestingly, we're looking at, um, using the ground floor amenity to put into place some form of flexible office accommodation on behalf of our tenants. So we think that's a real, you know, uh, it, it's something we we're thinking about pre-COVID actually. Um, and with many things that we're seeing, you know, what the pandemic has done has accelerated many trends. And actually, flexible working is clearly one of those. And so we ourselves are also accelerating into that space by uh, thinking about how we can best use the ground floor accommodation to provide that sort of amenity to our to our customers. I think it's really interesting, Ben, that that theme has run through everything. So it's the theme of there have been existing trends, they have been really highlighted and accelerated um, through the crisis. Um, I think there's lots of different areas of housing. We had a really interesting conversation with Will and Richard about other types of housing. Um, and obviously, one of the other sectors that we look at is social and affordable housing. Um, Richard shared some really interesting thoughts on what's next for social social and affordable housing. Well, I think there's an emotional element that um, I think the public are much more wary of, uh, not, not just of NHS workers, but, but also numerous other workers that have 
kept the um, the economy and frankly our, our health going um, during, during that time. So uh, yeah, I think there has been a, an element of that. But I think what we've seen through what we are likely to see as a result of, of COVID-19 is that there is going to be an increasing pressure on more and more households. Uh, and that means that people are less likely to go into home ownership and therefore people will stay in rent for longer. But also those people that would have stayed in private rent may well have their own um, disposable incomes um, significantly reduced, maybe in the medium term, maybe in the long term. And perhaps there'll be further pressure on affordable housing as a result. And so uh, I think there is a there's a broad consensus, both publicly and within the investment market, that we need to find solutions that, uh, you know, that meet the needs of, of all of these key workers. So as Richard said, there in our, in our final clip, increasing interest in in social and affordable housing. And that goes, I think, alongside, I think we mentioned several times here, this need to to regenerate some of our towns and cities, to regenerate housing, to regenerate some of our towns and cities uh, in a way that is not purely focused on on retail and also to possibly change and adapt our offices. So it's a huge opportunity, I think, Kirsty, isn't it, Uh, for regeneration and placemaking in some of our major towns and cities? I think all of the the things that we've been talking about, there's so much crossover in how our lives work now. And we were already trending towards that. It's really suddenly we work in the place that we live and we shop in the place that that we're next to. And and that crossover means that placemaking becomes so much more important. The places that we live in and we work in become so much more important. Um, And actually, you know, we've always had a focus on looking at the environmental and social aspects of real estate and again this has just really highlighted the importance of of that and in particular the social impact the importance of making sure that that places meet the requirements of society not that society slots into buildings um, and that that ethos has become just so central to to everything that we talk about in in real estate now i, I think that's right and and certainly at federated hermes we've been involved in regeneration and placemaking in many of our major towns and cities in the UK and increasingly looking overseas to help implement those strategies. And I think we're going to be trying to lead the way in terms of integration of housing tenure too. You heard from Will Gibby talking about uh, PRS and prior rented housing, but clearly social and affordable housing is going to be a very important part of, uh, of the physical landscape of our towns and cities going forward. And it's really important to hear our experts talking about uh, integration of housing uh, and integration of, of commercial type together, flexibility with office in the ground floor of retail or social and affordable alongside office retail and private rental housing as well. Those integrated communities, as we know, are more more socially unified and lead to better social and economic uh, outcomes. And that those ESG issues are central to everything, but it's also, as you said, Kirsty, it's about the adaptability of real estate to meet modern needs. And that's probably that's probably the most important thing that came out for me, I think. Absolutely. I think it's about adaptability and flexibility and being innovative in using the spaces that we already have to meet the changing needs of us as consumers and workers and, um, and residents of houses. On that note, I've got to wrap up today's episode of Amplified. But before I do, I'd like to thank Kirsty Wilmer for joining me today and to Emily Bird, fund manager, Ed Selick, investment manager, Richard Stonehouse, head of uh, residential investment at Avison Young, David Dix, associate principal at Townsend, 
and we'll give it our fund manager for residential real estate for sharing such interesting insights with us. That leaves me to present to you my key takeaways from today's conversation. So what did we learn? Firstly, I think we learned that good management, good real estate management has never been more important as, uh, as, it, as, as we saw during the crisis. Uh, and secondly, I think the crisis has brought into focus many trends that were already apparent, but in many cases accelerated those existing trends. And thirdly, I think post-crisis, it, our physical environment will experience huge challenges, but also from a real estate investment perspective, huge opportunities will exist in regeneration and new housing types. Real estate really can be a solution to many of our social and economic challenges. In the meantime, if you have enjoyed this podcast and don't want to miss upcoming episodes, please subscribe to the Federated Hermes podcast channels Amplified and Here and Now, and you'll find these channels on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Until then, I'm Ben Sanderson, an Executive Director for Federated Hermes Real Estate. Thank you for listening to Amplified. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.